Samuel 7. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we've, uh, we've been in the book of Samuel, so let me remind you that the, uh, that the ark of God has just come home. The, the Israelites, you may recall, uh, had foolishly tried to manipulate God when they, the Philistines were mustered against them. They had brought the, the ark into battle with them, thinking that God has to defend himself, right? Wrong. Israel is defeated. Hophni dies. Phineas, his wife, Eli. The whole episode is, is capped by Mrs. Phineas's dying words as, as, you know, labor pains came upon her and as she gives birth to her child, as she dies, she names him Ichabod. The glory of Israel has departed. There is no glory. Okay, but while the ark was taken from Israel as a chastisement, um, it was taken into Philistia for a different sort of chastisement. The, the Israelites did not treat God as holy, uh, and neither did the Philistines. They put the ark of God in the temple of Dagon, their God, if you remember, uh, now, Dagon was made to bow. The idol of Dagon was prostrate before the ark. And then, when the Israelites set Dagon back in his place, so they are manipulating, literally manipulating their God, putting him back in his place. In doing that, they are acting just like the Israelites. So Israel is deprived of the ark for seven months. For seven months, God shows uh, himself to be holy among the Philistines. Um, and so they get struck with uh, tumors and mice. And when we were last in the book, you may remember the, the Philistines had had enough. The, the ark was gone in their territory for seven months. It kept bouncing around, and it was causing uh, havoc everywhere the ark settled. So the Philistines got together, and they said, we need to get rid of this thing. Let's send it home. But, you know, it could have happened by chance. Let's make sure. So they set up a scenario where there's no way the ark's going to be taken home uh, unless it's by God's divine act. They, they locked up the calves of nursing cows away from them, hooked up a, a cart to them, and watched to see what would happen. And sure enough, by God's leading, those cows returned the ark to Israel. And... Uh, it was a great time of rejoicing for Israel, right? The ark comes home. Uh, but just as soon as the ark comes home, God makes it very clear that just because he's back doesn't mean we're square and everything's okay. In other words, the Philistines, they learned their lesson in seven months. Seven months later, Israel still hasn't. Some men of Beth Shemesh looked into the ark and God smote them. I love that word, smote. It's an old one, but a good one. God smote them. 
he will be regarded as holy. So a bunch of people die, and the people realize, whoa, who can can dwell in the presence of this holy God? But they don't ask that question in a good way. See, that's that's a good question. But they don't ask it in a good way. Rather, they are afraid, and so they turn away from God. But the men of Kiriath-Jerim, they took care of the ark, and they placed it in the home of Abinadab, and it sits there. For 20 years, it sits there. Let's jump in. We're in chapter 7, verse 1. The men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, the ark's actually going to be there for about 40 or 50 years total. Um, In other words, we're about to see what happens 20 years into the ark's sojourn here at at, Israel. Kiriath, Jerem, and Abinadab's house. But, you know, even after our story this morning, the, uh, the ark's going to stay there until David sends for it during his reign. But, you know, something happens 20 years into the ark's sojourn at Abinadab's house. Um, there seems to be a, a spontaneous nationwide revival or awakening. The people as a whole repent. Verse 3, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreth, and they served the Lord. Only. Now, I say this was a spontaneous revival, but I actually think that verse 3 represents 20 long years of faithful service by Samuel. 20 years of preaching and ministering the Word of God to the Israelites. He had been firmly established as a prophet of the Lord, and the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. And, and you know, his words are very much like the words that John the Baptist spoke, aren't they? Samuel was preaching repentance. Bear fruit in keepings with repentance. If you, if you are truly returning to the Lord, then get rid of all those other gods you've got. Matthew 3.8 That was exactly John's message. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Well, in time, those words had their effect. People did put away their foreign gods. uh, and They devoted themselves to the Lord and to only the Lord. Verse 5, Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So the people have turned their hearts toward the Lord and it's it's time for a, 
a renewal, a covenant renewal ceremony. They, they want to seek the face of the God that they've offended. They want him to make his face to shine upon them, to lift up his countenance upon them and give them peace. So they come, and what do they do? Three things. They draw water. They pour the water that they've just drawn out onto the ground, and they fast. Now, the drawing and the pouring of the water, that's, that, that's the same thing. They, they labor for the water and then waste it, as it were, spill it. It's, it's very much like fasting. When you fast, you establish the priorities of your heart. You, um, you've got priorities that you're setting before the Lord. Lord, I love, I value this more highly than this. And when you fast, you, you, you put that into practice. You prove it as it were. You demonstrate that that really is how your heart values things relatively. They wanted the light of God's countenance. They wanted it more than food. They groaned after the Lord. Likewise, they pour out precious water after laboring for it. Maybe they're they're showing like, you know, Paul... He's got all of his, he's a Benjamite. He's, you know, in terms of the, you know, obedience to the law by human standard, he's blameless. And he says, it's all rubbish. I think they're basically pouring themselves out before the Lord. They're voluntarily spilling all their labors themselves out the symbol of life itself in that area. But, you know, all of this is about repentance. And and in our story, it's particularly a repentance from serving other gods, um, the gods of Canaan. But, you know, these stories, they were written down for our instruction. And, and, you know, there's a lot of false gods around, but you don't have a temple of Baal nearby. Um, But Paul tells us in Colossians 3, 5, that covetousness is idolatry. And that's something that, brothers and sisters, not a single one of us in this room could claim to be without. Even Paul, blameless in his legal observance, couldn't be cleared of of that sin of the heart, covetousness. Covetousness is is self-centered. It's about my desires, my needs. Well, how is that idolatry? Well, you remember when Lot's wife uh, was offered salvation in the Lord, what did she do? She looked longingly back at what this salvation was going to cost her, what she was losing in the transaction. Or how about when Jesus came to the rich, or the rich man came to Jesus, actually. He says, Behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He said, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said, Which ones? 
And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not commit bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And there's the key question. Jesus knows that his heart is not 100% God's because part of it he has reserved for his own possessions. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth, money, can very easily become an idol. Greed, the desire for it, is an idol. You know... Israel's idols, think, think with me about this for a minute. Now, on the one hand, they seem very distant. I mean, we don't have Baal, we don't have Ashtoreth, we don't even know what they look like, right? But what I want you to appreciate is when, when Israel was in Egypt, every stage of Israel's history, they are idolatrous. When they were in Egypt, what were the idols? They were Egyptian idols. When they're in Canaan, what are the idols? They're Canaanite idols. Well, you live in the world, brothers and sisters, and what's the god of this world? Money, sex, power, all sorts of things that are all self-centered. People draw water out and pour it out. The people fast to demonstrate in action what's true in their hearts. We are empty before you, Lord. We come with nothing. So the people are truly repentant. Uh, and just when they gather to pray for God's renewed blessing, the Philistines attack, verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard, it, heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines, and he threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. So the Philistines see this, this covenant renewal ceremony as a, as, a, an as a threat. Israel is mustering. They must be up to no good. But it's also an opportunity. Look, they're all gathered together. We can attack them. And um, when they do draw near to attack, the people are afraid. Now, we're not supposed to be afraid. They're not supposed to be afraid. But we, we are. When we face frightening things, we do get afraid. Uh, 
And our forefathers have been under God's chastisement for 20 long years. Will he hear us or is he still angry with us? Well, of course God's going to deliver them. In fact, God has orchestrated things to make just that contrast. You know, before, before they were haughty, proud. They imagined that they could leverage their relationship with God to get what they wanted. Well, now they are humble and they look to God to deliver them. And he does. He always does. If you will humble yourself, cast off your idols, those things that that you won't sacrifice to his kingdom. You remember the, the rich young man, he walked away sad because he wasn't away to, uh, willing to part with that. And, and Lot's wife, she looked back because she didn't want to part with that. Well, what don't you want to part with? That's an idol. And maybe you need to get rid of it. But when you humble yourself, or let me put it like the scriptures put it, when you die to yourself, when you put to death that old man in you that wants what God says you should not want or does what God says you should not do, when you put to death that old man in you with its worldly priorities and devotion and embrace the gospel instead, pouring yourself out entirely as though pouring water out onto the ground. Surrendering yourself entirely to him. You know, that's why there's unity in the church. It's because none of us comes by our own merit. Every single one of us has come the same way, confessing our utter unworthiness to stand before a holy God. And we only stand because of what one man, our beloved brother and Savior, Jesus Christ, did for us. I stand that way, you stand that way, we all stand that way. And so that's where the unity is found. So cliche, but it's true, the ground at the foot of the cross is level. You acknowledge that when you came in confession. It's only by grace that you stand, so, so you stand no higher than anybody else. And when you take that posture... God is pleased to deliver you. Now, as many of you know, that deliverance is not always in this age. Most of our reward and vindication comes not under this sun, but in the eternity when no sun is needed because Jesus is our light. But nothing that has been given up under the sun for God Nothing that we give up for God in this age will be truly lost. In fact, we're promised that we will gain much more when Jesus returns. Verse 12. Then Samuel took up a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shane and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. So they were 
camped at one Ebenezer when the ark was taken, when they acted insolently and were chastised for it. And and by naming this place by the same name, Ebenezer, and by adding those words, till now God has helped us. Samuel explains that the Lord was working even then in our chastisement. God is at work both in our chastisement and in our deliverance. You know, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Till now, from from the day he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, he has been at work among them even when they stumbled. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places, and then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. He didn't go everywhere. In fact, if you put these out on a map, you know, it's all southern, southern Israel, just around Judah, uh, hill country of Judah. Um, he just went on a little circuit around his, his hometown, Proclaiming the word of God to all who would listen. But the labors of, by the labors of that one man in this seemingly humble service of a, a, a circuit of preaching, the whole nation over time was brought to repentance. God let none of his words fall to the ground. So, what's the takeaway? Well, brothers and sisters, this is a passage about repentance, so that's the takeaway, repent. Um, But notice how God's call to repentance is in an offer of hope. There's a reason we repent, because there's a better way. They didn't turn to God for deliverance from the Philistines, but turning to God ensured that they would be delivered from the Philistines. They didn't try to make God deliver them. They pleaded from a posture of humility, and that is what God is looking for from us. Now, if you can't find any idols in your heart, thats I'm not going to say shame on you, you're not looking hard enough, although that might be true, but maybe it's a good thing. Maybe, you know, honestly, as you see, search your heart in your bed at night and you say, Lord, if if there's an idol, show it to me and you can't find one. That's great. Now, from that posture, if that's true of you, from that posture, surely you recognize that God is powerful to save and powerful to establish his kingdom. So take that maturity of yours and serve the kingdom with it. There are many among us who are hurting, who need the word of encouragement, who who need the experience that you have of God's grace shared with them. So like Samuel, even if it takes you 20 years and nobody's asking you overseas here, you have a circuit, you have a life, you run into people, you can, like Samuel, just be faithful, sharing the truth in love, and it's transformative.
By faithful witness of one man, a nation was turned. So search, search your hearts. If there's idols there, repent of them. What won't you sacrifice for the kingdom? Repent of that. Sacrifice it if necessary. You know, you've probably heard of the, the old trope about the, uh, the monkey who's got something he's gripping inside of a little vase and he, he can't get his hand out because he won't let go of it. If he would just let go, he, he could get his hand out of the grip. It, it's like that, brothers and sisters. Whatever it is that you're not willing to sacrifice to the kingdom, it's keeping you from life. Let go and be free. And when you have and you are, proclaim that freedom to others, to all who will listen. You know, Christ offers us redemption and deliverance and eternal life and vindication and blessing, all things which He earned for us. The only way we get it is by dying to ourselves. But when we do, oh, the power that is ours power to obey, power to rejoice in times of suffering, power to wait on God's timing, power of an indestructible life. Will you pray with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, we would be humble. Make us so. Father, we want to be tender-hearted. We want to be righteous we ask, Lord, that you would show us the idols which remain in our hearts and help us to, to lose them, to put them to death. Remind us, Lord, that you are our refuge. You are a shield about us. You are the one who lifts up our face. And Father, help us to put all our hope and all of our confidence in you and be willing to sacrifice absolutely anything of what we have or who we are or our time. Help us, Lord, to be uh, offering you our bodies as living sacrifices for Christ's sake. Amen.